Welcome to a special series from the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I'm your host, and this is War and Resilience, How Ukrainians Are Teaching the World. This is episode three with our good friend Raya Shalaska from uh, the Care and Purpose Institute of Child Development in her PhD program, but um, originally from Ukraine. And we talk with Raya about uh, all things mental health, foster care, um, war in Ukraine, and what does the future look like of being able to care for um, the families, babies, individuals who have been affected by the war. And how did how, how can she, how is she planning on um, beginning that work when she is able to go back? And so um, you're going to love Raya. She is doing some incredible work um, at TCU with the KPICD. Um, and she is also uh, got quite a plan for when she goes back. And so uh, we're very thankful to her for coming on. Um, now, without any further ado, here she is, Raya, talking about war and resilience, how Ukrainians are teaching the world. Okay, so we're here today with Raya Shalaska. Did I say that correctly? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yes. Okay, great. And um, we're going to talk about a lot of different things when it comes to Ukraine. But Raya, first, just for people who have no idea who you are or um, what you do, do you mind just kind of sharing a, a little bit about yourself, maybe your story of, of how you came to the States? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so my journey started in 2006 when me and my husband uh, become a foster family in Ukraine. And uh, I am originally from a capital, the big city, Kiev. And in order to take children in our family, we had to move to kind of a village area. So we did it. And of course, taking care of children who experienced trauma and a lot of our foster children lived on the streets and had really traumatic childhood, early childhood. So I was just puzzled. Um, Nothing worked that worked with our biological children, with those who were fostering, and I started to look for answers. And this is how I actually got introduced to TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention, that was developed in Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development, in TCU, and in 2013, I came here to Texas to get trained in this intervention. So, um, and this is where I can tell that my life was divided um, before and after. So it was such a significant event, such a significant shift in my mindset. I got so excited and so um, thrilled to bring this intervention to Ukraine, to my home country. And um, we were able to translate all the DVDs, the book, The Connected Child, the training materials, uh, caregiver packages to Russian languages and Ukrainian. So, And also we did this big um, Eastern Europe practitioner training in 2020. Um, so yes, it was, um, big kind of journey that started uh, a while ago. Yeah. There's so many things I feel like 
you know, you very casually shared these five or six, like huge, huge things in your life. So first one thing I'm just interested in. So for obviously like in our, like in the U S within the foster care system, um, something you said that was just a, a difference I noticed is that you, you mentioned needing to move out of Kiev to mm-hmm. like a smaller village to do foster care. Will you tell us about why that, why that is that way there? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, actually we had 10 foster children <laughs> pretty much right away. Hold and so we need like a, you're saying 10. Yes. 10. Um, wow. And this is, yeah. So we needed like a bigger place. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so back in time, the foster system was really kind of new and developing and the way uh, the government seen it is that the foster family, um, there's a certain different kinds of foster families, but the one that government kind of oversees, which is alternative to the institution, is the one you have to have 10 kids. And also we worked uh, as a like in the nonprofit organization kind of provided us with uh, a big apartment where we can all fit together. And this is why we moved out. And also it's better for children to live in kind of suburbs in more like rural rural area than in a big city. So it was like more manageable. Okay. Mm -hmm. And at this point you were saying you guys already have biological kids and how many kids did you have biologically? Uh, two. We have okay. twins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at that point, then you have 12 kids that you're caring for. Uh, yeah. So the number of foster children was uh, between, at the same time, between seven and 12. But it was always kind of, kids were like in and out. It was kind of depends. But yeah, in general, it was not easy. And, but again, after... I learn about this intervention that help children with history of trauma to heal and to get better. I'm like, okay, this is it. It's really practical. It's really doable. It's really kind of makes sense. So, and it was a big shift in my personal and professional life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Professionally, were you, were you working in any kind of therapeutic like place at that point in life or was foster care your main like working initiative mm-hmm. throughout the day? So the foster care was my, my main thing for a couple of years. And then I was, uh, I became a director of this foster family okay. um, uh, center. Like we had six foster families that uh, we would support and provide them guidance, provide them with um, anything they need, like food and funds. So basically it was a great alternative to the institutional setting because um, the Father's House, it's the big international charity foundation in Ukraine. They have this rehabilitation center where children would come and spend a year or, or two. And then they would move to the family care center where they live in a family until they're adopted or you're reunited with their biological families okay. or they just age out of, um, yeah, of the system. So basically it was like an alternative uh, for children so they don't have to s- spend their time in institutional setting. 
Okay. And so during that year or, or, or so when they're in the, when they're in care before being moved into a foster family, what's, what's happening in their lives? Like, what does that year look like for them? Uh, I want to make sure I understand this question. I mean, like the kids who come before uh, to our foster family, what was their life like before? Oh, I think you, well, so what I was understanding you to say is that there, that there was like a transitional program that kids would come. Yes, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, during yeah. that transitional program, what does that look like? Are there, are there people who are helping them work through trauma or is that, is that mm-hmm. um, something that is within the scope of, of their work there? Yeah, so in the so the first step is a summer camp because a lot of children we had back in time were from the like from the streets and it's such a like too much of the transition for them to move from the streets to some kind of facility even if it's private Christian um, kind of center. So they would spend the whole summer in the summer camp, getting to know staff and getting to know um, everyone. And then they would move for a year or two to this rehabilitation center where psychologists would work with them, like pedagogues, uh, pedagogists. I don't know. You can cut it out. I don't know how to spell it. Where the professionals would work with them, professionals like speech therapy, psychologists, Mm -hmm. art therapy, uh, tutors because a lot of children they did not attend school because they lived on the streets so basically the first year or two of their time there they would just catch up on a lot of things uh, but um, there was now such thing as a trauma-informed care we didn't know that back yeah. in time um, yeah. so and this is why learning about intervention TBR, TBRI um was a big shift because okay finally we understand why children behave the way they do and how to help them yeah so yes um yeah this is kind of the transition period um yeah. the whole process that ch- children would go through mm-hmm. and, and when you came across tbri for the first time and you began reading about it and learning um were you sharing this with colleagues of yours and were they also equally excited or did you get you get some pushback as well yeah, naturally, I had a huge pushback first, saying like, "Oh, it's all American thing; it have nothing yeah. to do with our realities." But then, the more I would talk about that, the more I would talk about the concepts and principles and strategies, people would see like, "Okay, it does make sense." And actually, we did our first TBRI therapeutic camp with my colleagues. You know, that were like, "Okay, let's try it." And the results were like amazing. It was just really like a miracle. We observed how children would change through the like through those days of the camp, and we got great feedback from the caregivers. So we decided, okay, this is it. We're gonna move forward with this intervention. And since then, we did a lot of therapeutic uh, camps and counseling, therapeutic groups, support groups, training for caregivers, parents, professionals. So it's became a big part of our uh, life mm-hmm. as That's professionals and personal. Now, what point, okay, you're talking to me today in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yes. at what point did um, you decide, okay, I, I want to go even further than practitioner training with this. I want to, I want to go mm-hmm. 
to school and be be equipped to come back and, and do this, you know, full-time. How did that timing work out? Mm-hmm. So actually I was like, so like amazed by this intervention. So I would come for practitioner training and then, okay, what else do you have? And so I would just really exhaust all their trainings, attend all their trainings. And then like, actually we have master's program here. But back in time, I had my bachelor's in management. Um, and I, I, I had a lot of training on how to work with children, um, different uh, courses, but I never had like this official education. Yeah. So I decided to go back to school and I got my bachelor's in psychology. And then I... Okay came here with my family in 2017 for my master's in developmental trauma. Okay. So after being here for 15 months, we moved back to Ukraine and um, I really fell in love with research. With, like, I was just eager to take it further and maybe develop additional interventions or kind of benefit the TBRI and yeah. develop more resources. And this is why I decided, okay, I want to do more. So, and this is how I ended up applying here for PhD program. And we moved here in the fall of 2021. Okay. So at that point, we're starting to overlap with the beginnings of the war firing back up. And, and one of the things that Madison mm-hmm. talked about was that the war never really stopped, that it had been going on for much longer than that, but that's when it became mm-hmm. kind of a full scale deal. Yes. And so mm-hmm. will you talk about the timing of that starting back up and your timing to come here? Well, we had no idea as majority of Ukrainians until the first day of the full invasion that it's, gonna happen right so it was a big shock for everyone so our move to the states was based on my desire to get education to get my phd in psychology and we had no idea that the war will start um so but it was like such a big shock and it just it's really hard to have this constant uh, grieving process because it's not the event that ended, right? It's ongoing right. acute stress, ongoing event, and so many tragedies happening every single day. So many people die, innocent children um, die every single day. So it's really hard to kind of have it on the background or sometimes on the arena of your life and try to kind of live your life and move forward. Right. And you know, for your husband, your kids who are, who are with you as well, like I mm-hmm. assume the same, the same thing, like you guys, it, it must feel a little bit lonely or disconnected being so far away from home, but, but not mm-hmm. being, not being in immediate danger right now. How, how is that going for you guys in terms of like being able to figure out how to keep moving on? What, what are the things you guys have done mm-hmm. at home? Mm-hmm. Um, there's two things that go hand in hand is a sense of relief that my family, my children, my husband, they're here and they're safe because my twin boys, they're uh, 19 years old. So if they would have been in Ukraine, they would not be able to leave the country and there was a high risk of being drafted and being killed in the war. So 
that's a little bit too much. Um, and I have just really a lot of respect to those mothers who just, you know, sacrifice, have this huge, you know, like admiration for those who have their sons and husbands and brothers on the front line defending Ukraine. So, and the other process is survival guilt, right? So on the one side, we believed that we are safe. On the other side, our people suffer, our friends, our family, they suffer, and we are here safe. So that's kind of the guilt takes place also. Um, so there's lots of things going on um, inside, outside, uh, and it's, but still, I do believe and this is what helps us move forward. I do believe that we are here for a reason. We are mm-hmm. safe here in Texas for a reason. And from this, from here, we can help so much more Ukrainians. Yeah. We can help like hundreds and hundreds Ukrainians uh, versus we would just sit in a bomb shelter in Kyiv somewhere uh, yeah. trying to survive and trying to just stay alive. So, and that's why it helps us feel a little bit better about yeah. being safe because we were able to help so many people. I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult to even try to imagine that happening for most of us living or, or listening to this. We've not been um, firsthand in, in any kind of war zone or area. And some people may have who are mm-hmm. listening, but the, the majority of us have not experienced that um, personally. And so it's hard to wrap your minds around that. Um, or, you know, when we, we listen to Madison Yuri talk about um, what life had been like where they were and where a lot of their their friends and, and family are. You obviously are living in a completely different part of the country, the, the biggest city. Um, you know, I've seen on the news and I'm interested to know kind of your perspective being in daily contact with people who are still there. It mm-hmm. There is a portrayal of Ukrainians as trying very difficult, trying very hard to maintain mm-hmm. a sense of normalcy and trying to like, uh, live ordinary life as much as they can outside of having to then seek shelter when they have to. Would you just kind of mm-hmm. describe to us from from the people you're you're talking to what is life like in Kiev day to day right now? Mm-hmm. It's a great question because um, for me being here and watching the news and knowing what's going on, you know those massive shellings and rockets you know like hundreds flying just and hitting the infrastructure civilian homes and all that stuff it's just devastating but i'm also impressed with the stamina of my uh people you know and again people get used to pretty much everything and one of my friends told me that once you live here among all these war actions, you kind of get used to this idea that you live in a war and um, it's not as scary as a, just um, a look at the situation from outside. Because when you're inside, of course, if something lands really like close to you or you hear this explosion just really close, of course, it's terrifying, and of course, it's terrifying to even hear the air raid siren, and it's really, really hard. But also, people resilient, and they just live their lives in these new circumstances, in this new context, 
and they try so hard and I can see that there are so many volunteers, so many people that just do so much for uh, those who suffer from consequences of the war. So yes, um, and having family um, in Kharkiv, in Mariupol, in Kyiv, you know, in different regions in Ukraine, some of them suffered greatly from the war, like Mariupol is completely destroyed and so many tragic losses there. The Kharkiv is constantly on a fire kind of line. Um, Kyiv is relatively safe, uh, but we still have missiles and rockets landing. Um, but yeah, it's all about perspective, right? From like yeah. once you live in this for a year, you kind of get used to things like the siren, you need, you need to seek shelter or there is no power for a day or two or there is no power for half of the day every day. So people, and now they just say, for example, I realize how little I need for happiness. I just need safe sky, you know, nothing flies, nothing lands. I need yeah. electricity and just some stability, just minimum stability. And people like those basic things. And now they appreciate it so much. And all they want is to work to be over and to have the basic things is running water, electricity, and access to food. So I hear a lot of things in there that you are saying people just get adjusted to it and they just continue on like normal. And I would mm-hmm. contend that there is something that at least from our perspective or, or from my perspective, looking from you know Memphis, Tennessee, something that looks different about the Ukrainian people and that looked different about the Ukrainian people from the beginning. Do you think there's something that um, is inherent in Ukrainian culture that um, when the war Mm -hmm. started and there was this image, there's kind of this collective image of uh, leaders and the people of Ukraine kind of standing Mm -hmm. up and straightening their backs and saying, absolutely not, this is not going to happen. What is it about Ukrainian people and culture that, um, that, that you think allows them to persist mm-hmm. in such a way and have such resilience? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. You know, like Ukrainian people, historically, they had to fight for their freedom pretty much nonstop for hundreds of years. Uh, it was uh, oppressions different from uh, the Russian side, from, you know, like different, like historical um, oppressions, it's World War One, World War Two, it's Holocaust, it's like a lot of adversity um, we experienced within the last couple of hundreds of years, and even like it gets dated far uh, behind than those dates. Um, so I think we do have this resilience and what why we differ from other nations, it's we love freedom. You know, we are, it's really hard to manage Ukrainians and just keep them quiet because if they don't like something like the course the government choose, you know, for example, to become more like pro-Russian instead of becoming more than pro-Europe, people would go outside and throw a revolution, which is exactly what we did a couple of times, right? So we love freedom, we love our land, we love um, our people. And this is something that 
keeps us going. I think this is something that gives us the strength to fight because we know what we're fighting for. We're fighting for future of our children. We're fighting for future of our country. And yeah. That's, I mean, it's incredible. And I think that's, that makes perfect sense. Um, for generations, there's generations of resilience baked into the culture um, that now kind of permeates without having to have you know, direct lineage of people um, teaching that to you. So when we talk about the future for children, specifically in mm-hmm. Ukraine, and you thinking through um, having been having been in the foster care system, working um, tirelessly day in, day out in pre-war times, um, what do you think about when, when you think about going back to Ukraine and beginning mm-hmm. to work again with children? What are your hopes and what are the things that you want to begin um using this this knowledge and these skills that you've acquired to help do mm-hmm. in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, since the war started, I really kind of shifted my priorities and my focus. Um, and I started to work with Ukrainians online. Uh, since I do have a consulate degree from Ukraine, and I'm trained in EMDR, in positive psychology, so in different... Yeah. Um, interventions that I did use uh, and I still use uh, with children suffered from war and from, for adults. So I have a few times a week, every week since the war started pretty much. Uh, I have those counseling sessions I provide uh, for my people. Um, I do also know that uh, to be practitioners in Ukraine, they also started to adjust to the right tools like nurture groups to really create this safe place of support and um, to build the resilience, to build the connection, to build those like skills that children uh, and adults need, you know, to move forward with their lives and to prevent the PTSD development. So I do know that already a lot of things happening um helping Ukrainians on a, with a mental health and preventing PTSD development or dealing with symptoms of already developed PTSD. So a lot of things in place right now, but I do know that once the war over, um, we need to rebuild not only the infrastructure, infrastructure, not only destroyed cities, not only destroyed homes, but also we need to rebuild mental health of our mm-hmm. children, mental health of caregivers or parents, because otherwise it's trauma has really powerful impact and long lasting impact on child development, on human development. And it just really breaks my heart that we don't have enough um, mental health professionals to really meet this huge need, you know, of suffering and pain and loss and fear and terror that people experience often on a daily basis. When you dream and you think of kind of what the future could look like in rebuilding mental health and the, Mm -hmm. are there, are there systems, are there ways that you think about, um, here's what I would love to see done 
um, to begin mm-hmm. helping that out? Like, what, what do you think would be the answer in helping to rebuild a mental health infrastructure in your mm-hmm. country? I think the most, uh, right, uh, let's say it again, the most important resource is human resources. Mm-hmm. So I would love to unite health, mental health professionals. I would like to maybe help whoever wants to become one and whatever help other countries can offer us in training, in supervision, in just in any way to help our children to heal from trauma, to help parents and families just to get better uh, because there is no way I can do it by myself or, um, a group, or a group of Ukrainians can do. The wound we have, the war trauma you know, we have is so enormous and we need a lot of support and a lot of help and a lot of guidance. And I'm already thankful for um, Karen Pervis Institute of Child Development, for um, EMDR Network Association in the United States, in Europe, in other uh, uh, professional associations that raise um, up and they stood up and they stand with us and they help us. But also, yes, there's a long way to go. And I know that I will work with Ukrainians for the next decade at least with children and families helping them to overcome the war-related trauma yeah well there's a lot to be done obviously um and mm-hmm. we're not even to the point of of the war being over yet and so um lastly when you think about kind of the family unit or family structures in Ukraine, do you think of, um, are, does, that, does that fall within the same thing you just talked about or just, you know, uh, increasing the number of professionals who are there and able to give care? Are there things that are, are particular about family culture in Ukraine that you think present opportunities um, for rebuilding? Um, and what do you think, you know, for people who are listening who are like, I would love to figure out how to do something, you know, what do you think those people can do to begin help uh, families and children to rebuild in, in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the big challenges we face right now is separation uh, because women and children, they, they flee Ukraine to stay, to look for safety, right? So we have around 8 million millions of Ukrainians yeah. in Europe, right? In bordering countries. And the fathers, husbands, they all stayed in Ukraine because they cannot leave the country in case they need to be drafted. Mm-hmm. So, and those um, children with their like mothers, grandmothers, caregivers scattered across Europe, and it's really hard to do life in a different country, you know, with no kind of with limited support, with um, no opportunity to be a family as a whole. Um, I also know that uh, a lot of families, uh, mothers and children being sent to the western part of Ukraine and men, they steal and fight in army um, in a front line or they defend their cities, their villages. So there is a lot of separation and a lot of uh, instability and it's really hard to navigate uh, those challenges. Um, The second part of your question, 
is about what can be done. I think we do need to strengthen the families. So because if family is strengthened, they have ability to care forward and with support of like its research says that resilience is directly kind of correlated with social support you have um, around you. And um, yes, I think it's really important to support those families who are like separated or who, who are trying to stay together, even like in a dangerous zones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and just for um, mm-hmm. work you're doing and uh, obviously keep us posted on, um, you know, if there's ways that we can directly, you know, kind of spur our people on to help give toward specific initiatives. And um, we look forward to getting to see and hear what you do mm-hmm. um, with that PhD very soon. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and for this opportunity for me to speak about my people and speak about like interventions that will work and how we can help children heal from trauma and how we can support the families. Well, you've been listening to War and Resilience, How Ukrainians Are Teaching the World, a production of Empower to Connect Media. For Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio. For Tad Jewett, the creator of the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast. I'm J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next time on the Empowered to Connect podcast. Bye.